experience and building process, like, yeah, it's great. You've got a really neat company and you do things differently. Guess what? It's still a process. And guess what? There are ways to train process. There are ways to evolve it, track it, measure it. And if you've never done those before, you just literally don't know what you're doing. That's why it's important to bring people who've done it before into the, into the fold. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today on Demo Day. Glad to be here, Sean. So Kelly, your background is one of the more exciting backgrounds of all of the guests we've had because you've had so many different roles in uh, going through your career. You've been a COO, you've been a CFO, you've been in the military, uh, building, selling your own businesses. You sit on very large boards. And so you could really be doing like so many things with your you know, with your life and your, your career, but you've chosen VC, you've chosen venture capital. Uh, I would love to learn a little bit more, like, why are you so interested in VC? What is it about venture capital and, and investing in startups that really fires you up? Yeah, I'm, I must be crazy to want to be a VC, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I think my, my interest in investing uh, and really what I look at is helping entrepreneurs um, kind of starts at the beginning. I went to law and business school at UCLA and uh, I actually had one of those epiphany moments where if you could see the light bulb come on above my head, um, I, I know the exact time frame that I wanted to first be an operator. And then over time, how I moved from wanting to be an operator to wanting to invest in operators. And uh, I was at the printers, which is a place where they publish these legal documents for big deals that get done on a corporate deal. The law firm where I was working uh, was representing the company that was being acquired and we'd been at the printers for like two or three days straight. You know, everybody's ties run done, sleeves rolled up. Everybody smelled bad. And um, <laughs> on closing morning, um, the the principals, the, the the entrepreneurs of the company that came in, it was a Texas-based company, two older gentlemen in cowboy boots and suits and a cigar at like 8 a.m. Um, come in. And the, the law firm where I was and then the law firm for the acquiring company, they were arguing like where a comma went. Was and that comma or and comma that, and the CFO leaned over to the CEO of the, the you know the founders and kind of was like, "Can you believe we're paying these sons of blah, you know, six hundred <laughs> bucks an hour or whatever it was back then, uh, to argue about where a comma goes?" And I looked at him, I was like, "I want to be those that guy. guy. Yeah, I don't want to be on that side of the guy. table." Um, and so, so that kind of de definitely pushed me into the entrepreneurial role. And then after we successfully sold the first company that I had raised venture for. Um, it was right after the dot-com bubble burst. A lot of people probably don't remember 1999. Um, but the, uh, we, we got a company, we got a first round of financing and then got a company sold. And I got like a $50,000 at the close and then owned equity in this, other, this, new, this new company that eventually went public. So it worked out. But at the time I'm sitting there looking at it like, okay, I know that it takes usually five times to have a successful outcome. So that was one, but that was like three years of blood, sweat, and tears. And that was kind of a successful outcome compared to what was happening to a lot oh of Oh my gosh. Looking around. Yeah. I want to learn, and, and I'm sure you'll take us back to that point. Can you tell us a little bit more about early life, you know, for you, Kelly, like where did you grow up? Are you from Los Angeles or did you somehow find your way here? Oh no. So I'm not a Los Angeles native. Uh, I, w I was born in Lexington, Kentucky, um, so I'm a Wildcats uh, fan. 
Uh, I did a lot of growing up in Sarasota, Florida. I went to high school in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Um, I got a nomination to go to West Point out of, out of, out of Wyoming. So I went to West Point for undergrad. So four years at West Point, commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army, uh, stationed at Fort Ord up in Monterey, California. Uh, as part of my officer basic training, I'd completed uh, airborne school. I completed ranger school. So airborne ranger qualified um, and then served three years active duty during the first desert storm. And uh, Kelly, were you in, in high school, were you very entrepreneurial? Were you very business savvy? Like, cause, cause I know that, you know, the military West Point, like this is all part of your journey, but, but you know, what was the connection between that lifestyle and that way of thinking in business? Did that come later in life or, or have you always been very business oriented? So I would, I would say that I was not always business oriented. I was an athlete in, in high school, a lot of extracurricular activities, but my father- What was your sport? So my true love was basketball. Unfortunately, mm. my nickname was Toast, which is exactly how high I could jump off the ground, one slice of toast. Um, <laughs> but I, but, I, but I, was, I was pretty quick, quick left and right. I was actually um, uh, an all-state basketball player. We won state championship a couple times. Wow. Um, so, but it's Wyoming which is like for California, like Marina del Rey, same number of people in the whole state. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty sparsely populated. You were talking about your pops. Yeah. So uh, he was a land developer and, and very much an entrepreneur. And I watched him operate and he, he felt strongly that, um, you know, I needed to understand what it meant to make money. Um, and he put me to work at McDonald's. So I'm one of those people who worked at McDonald's. There is quite a number in the population, but I, I flipped burgers, you know, a couple hours a day, four hours a day, pick up extra shifts on weekends uh, to make any spending money that I wanted to have and got to learn and understand how to do my own budget. Um, really learn kind of some basic principles of finance, uh, at least from a personal operating budget uh, as a, you know, a sophomore and junior and senior in high school. Kelly, I, I'm. It feels almost like a cliche question, although I've never heard anyone ask it. But what what is the learnings or the takeaways that you apply? You know, a couple decades later, that you took away from the McDonald's of the world. It's like when you're investing in these startups that they're so far removed from a McDonald's mega corporation. But like, were there any key learnings or takeaways that you you know tend to bring bring into your thinking uh, every now and again that you learned from your days in McDonald's? Well, I mean, even in the three years that I worked at McDonald's, I remember seeing and watching how they were so adamant about the training that was associated with the process for each of the each of the products that were made, right? So whether it was, you know, how the meat came in, how it got packed in the freezer, when it came out, how it went on the onto the stove, how it was ordered, how many, and it was a constant focus on efficiency. Mm. Um, and you know, that was the rationale or reasoning for having to be retrained on something or re relearn how a new process was moving. You know, the drive through was happening. It was, it was, it was a pretty interesting microcosm for, you know, how do you operate a big company? Like everything that you add on, you need to be able to do at scale. And you always have to have somebody thinking about what process changes need to occur. What does it impact? How do you lay it out? I mean, you know, I, again, I was only in high school, so it was only in, in, in a little bit of hindsight thinking about it, but you, I definitely experienced that. Yeah, that's really interesting you say that. You know, my team, Coefficient Labs, is at 12 right now. And as you were talking about, like, the importance of the processes, I started to think about how, like, 
sometimes when your team is still a startup, you're still in this very early stage, you tend to go through all of these, um, you create the processes, but in, I almost feel like you kind of recreate them over and over and over. Like you always are creating processes. But what I just was thinking as you were saying that was like, when a process really works, write it down in a place that it becomes the standard and have that be, you know, like it's made me think, think a lot more about where are all of our current processes documented for our team? And is it something that we could bring in new members and they would be able to go up and running? I don't necessarily know. So I appreciate that, that thought because I, I don't think when you're trying to go, go, go perform, perform, you're really thinking about, you know, all of the buttoned up processes that it comes in the training bucket. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and, and it impacts too how you're hiring, like for, from a startup standpoint, like I, I get and understand that every company is a little different, um, but building processes isn't different. And then that goes to the thesis of our investment, you know, our investment thesis in terms of investing in quality leadership, mm. um, experience in building process. Like, yeah, it's great. You've got a really neat company and you do things differently. Guess what? It's still a process. And guess what? There are ways to train process. There are ways to evolve it, track it, measure it. And if you've never done those before, you just literally don't know what you're doing. That's why it's important to bring people who've done it before into the, into the fold. Now, uh, West Point is one of those schools that, you know, it has such a, uh, an amazing, uh, you know, it's something that many people look up to because it's such a tough school to get into. How did you decide that that was the direction that you wanted to go? Going from like a basketball sports background, did did you see that West Point as part of your future? Did that come through serendipity? So my decision to go to West Point was predicated on a few different factors. Again, remembering that I was whatever, 16 and a half, 17 years old at the time. So didn't have a, a world of wealth at just my disposal. Um, but my, you know, again, my father, uh, self-made man, and believed that you could get an education anywhere and that it was up to you. Um, so basically said, you know, I'm willing to pay for you to go to kind of in-state school, University of Wyoming. Um, but if you want to do something different than that, you're going to have to try to figure out how to make up the Delta. And, you know, I had a lot of different opportunities because I did well in school, did a lot of extracurricular activities, was a good athlete. So, uh, and was pretty aggressive and forward thinking and tried to apply early places and do all that kind of stuff. So had some different options. Um, but one of them that was even for a 16, 17 year old, um, is almost like this romantic notion with legacy and all this stuff, you know, with the, you know, Patton and MacArthur and, you know, this place is fraught, you know, just filled with, you know, the history of the United States, right. Since 1802, um, it's been graduating just an unbelievable leadership. Yeah. Um, then there's this military thing that if you're not in or around the military, you don't really know a lot about. And it's, I'm in Wyoming. It's in, it's in, you know, an hour North of New York city in New York, which if you're a 17 year old is like, might as well be on a different planet. Uh, <laughs> and I said, you know, I did, I did all the early application. I did the physical, I did the PT test. I did all that stuff. Um, and I said, you know what, what, you know, I have the opportunity to do it. Why don't we go visit? And they had the opportunity where you can go spend a night at the hotel fair there on the Hudson and then spend a full day and night with a cadet. Cause it's a, it's a shock. It's not like, you know, going to college, you're on a military post and it's a military facility. 
were you a big social, I mean, like high school, of course, you know, were you a big party guy? Like, cause West Point has that allure almost like from the movies, very buttoned up, very tight. I can imagine you going from like sports, lots of friends. Was this a very different experience when you went on campus that first day? So, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a shock to your system, right? Cause everybody's in uniform. Um, it wow. is pretty rigid. There's a very, uh, it's an unbelievable schedule. You basically have 20 credit hours you know, a semester. So it's like an overloaded normal school. Um, in addition, you're required to participate in athletics. You have military drill, i.e., you know, the pretty soldier like toy soldiers walking around and uh-huh. you know, walking, walk, you know, walking around and doing drill. Um, and you're just not allowed to, this is the, this is the part that most people don't fathom. So think back to when you were at college, if you went to college yeah. and you wake up in the morning, whenever you wake up, you figure out how to get your own food, wherever you get your own food. And maybe you go to class. Maybe you don't. At West Point, they take role and there's 15 to 20 cadets in a class called cadets, not students. And if someone's missing, if Kelly's not at his desk and there's no excuse, like there's not like he's on a trip section for an athletic activity or, you know, with Glee Club or whatever it is, whatever it might be, right? If it's unexcused and you don't, the class goes and finds you. The professor, who's a you know, military officer as well, you, you do not miss a class. You do not not turn in any homework assignment. Oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> so you learn the material because you are in the class learning the material and you, you just don't turn stuff oh in. Oh, my so God. Yeah, the different. University of Miami, the University <laughs> of Miami did not have uh, any anything like that. You know, there was like the swimming pool on campus where uh, unbelievable. Wow. So now, yeah, yeah go on. I'd, I'd say rigid's probably, you know, and there's a, this is when the mess hall is open and that's all the food that you can get. So you go to the mess hall. You have to have your hair cut to a certain military standard. So there's a barber. You put your laundry, everybody's got uniforms. Your laundry goes to the laundry and the plebes, the freshmen, deliver the mail, deliver the laundry, yell out minutes. They're like your alarm clock. So they stand in the hallway and say, sir, there are 10 minutes until breakfast formation. So before breakfast, you go stand in a formation. They do roll call and make sure everyone's there. Then you go in the mess hall, you're assigned to tables. The freshmen deliver the food out. It's almost like what I would imagine something of the, you know, fraternity like system. system might be. Mm-hmm. A little mm-hmm. bit, but on a much mm-hmm. like grand, grander scale. Yeah. Now, when you think about that time, because we're talking, you know, we're talking, it's it's been some uh, some time in between. What was one of the key takeaways? Uh, that you still cherish today, like something that you still look back on that time and you uh, appreciate that the most. Yeah, the uh, far and away with 20 credit hours, athletics, military drill. Oh, by the way, you have to get some sleep in. Um, <laughs> prioritization. So you are not, and this is this is absolutely critical for entrepreneurs too. There are a million things you could be doing every single day and there are a million things to do. You only have so much time. So, you know, I write about this in the book I wrote called Take Command. It's applying military leadership principles to business. And you, one, you're always on. So you, as the founder, the entrepreneur, right? Whether it's to, yeah. your, to your employees, to your business partners, to your investors, whatever it might be. And you have to always be putting your best foot forward, right? You, you have to show the best foot forward, but you only have so much time in a day. And there are diminishing returns and you cannot do everything or you will literally keel over. You can't mm-hmm. do it. 
So the ability to prioritize on what's most important and complete those items to, you know, there's the level of kind of satisfaction bar and then there's, okay, how am I going to stand out? So getting whichever ones of those are most critical, being able to consume information quickly, make decisions and execute, uh, completely invaluable. Now, Kelly, when you got out of West Point, what was your line of thinking? Because at that point, did you decide I want to go, you know, directly to the military or what, what, where were you at? What was, what was the just out of school Kelly uh, thinking at that moment? Yeah. So the, so the great thing about going to any of the service academies, the Naval Academy, Air Force or West Point is you don't have to think about what you're going to do for your job <laughs> <laughs> and you have a job, right? That's a big problem right now. Um, so you're commissioned for the, for the West Point, you're commissioned as a second lieutenant in the army. Um, you know, a few months before graduation, you select your branch, meaning military intelligence, infantry, armor, signal corps, whatever it might be. And then within that branch, you select your duty station, right? So force planning has, this is what's available. This is the slots that are needed. This is how many second lieutenants are needed. Mm. At these places. And then b- literally based on your rank in the class, you pick your branch. So if you, if you like a branch, but you're not, everybody takes it before it gets there. You better have your backup ready. That's a, that's a big decision too. It's like, am I going to be an infantry officer? Or am I going to be a signal intelligence officer? They're very, very different things that you're going to go do in the military. And then where am I going to be stationed? You know, which unit am I with? And it could go anywhere from probably not high on the list for most people is like Fort Polk, Louisiana. Whereas you could select if you were, you know, usually the topper to go or like, Schofield Barracks in Hawaii or Vicenza, Italy, right? So kind of the world can kind of be your oyster, but you're, you're going to do a very specific job. And did you, where did you decide to go or what, what was exciting for you at the time? So I picked um, the 7th Infantry Division Light, uh, which was a rapid deployment force. So I went to a unit in, uh, based in, uh, headquartered in Monterey, California, which is not a bad place to have an Army headquarters. Sure. And that unit uh, had a mission to be able to deploy in an aircraft on basically two hours. So one third of it, there, there were uh, one regiment and two brigades at, at that 7th Infantry Division. Lots and lots and lots and lots of people, like a small city. And it had to be able to be able to deploy our forces anywhere in the world, but on a two hour recall. So you basically had to be back in two hours, wheels up 18 hours. So to me, that was a real world mission. Um, and it just happened to coincide with, you know, what happened in Kuwait with Desert Storm. Now, what was your mentality going into it from like a a leader? Did you say to yourself, I'm going to like rise to the ranks? I'm going to, you know, because sometimes from my understanding and I have never been in, in the armed service. So you sort of get that, that, um, that cinematic movie take. That's like, some people are like, oh, I'm going to rise to the top. And what, w- what was your mentality when you first got in uh, to the armed forces? Well, uh, you sign a contract, uh, legally and criminally enforceable, um, for at uh, commissioning before your West Point time. Your payback period is anywhere from four to six years. And that congressionally, congr- Congress changes that. Um, and I think it's become, there's more flexibility now. Like if you really want to be this branch and you really want to go to this post, you can give up another year of working for the military in order to get exactly mm. what you want to go do. So there's some, you know, supply and demand 
elements to it. Um, so I knew I was signing up for at least five years where, you know, you raise your hand and you swear to uphold the, and defend the constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, basically up to and including with your life. So it's a very different graduation ceremony than yeah. experience in most places. Um, so you know you're doing it for five years and you signed up for it for five years. I had no military background or frame of reference. Um, I love the fact that leadership was an emphasis of your time at West Point, that their athletics were integrated. The military component I didn't know much about, but what I read about and saw and looked at, I liked and, and you know thought, mm -hmm. thought would be interesting and fun to do. Um, and so when I graduated and went into the military, I, I didn't know what to expect. None of us had served in the military before. And I liked all of the notions, all of the concepts. I loved the fact that I was serving, right? Doing something for the country, put, you know, ostensibly signing up to put myself in harm's way. Somebody's got to do it. I think I can do it. And you train with that mentality. Like I'm mm -hmm. going to train because we're going to deploy and I want to keep all my soldiers alive. Again, not like history class at where pick a, pick a regular college, right? It's just like, it's, it's just a different thought process. And it doesn't, there are ROTC, like the vast majority of military officers come out of the ROTC program who are at regular colleges. They're just doing their ROTC training at the same time they're there. So they come, they come at it from different perspectives, but you know, my, my frame of reference entering was I'm doing this for five years and see if I like it. And along the way, we'll decide and see what happens. And just be the best you possibly can in that, like, while you're there, you had just a, like, yeah. I just want to do the best I can. Yeah, mo most of the selection process for getting into West Point's varsity, multiple letter athletes, presidents of classes, you know, all the people who aren't a personality, driven hard, mm -hmm. measure me, measure me, how am I doing, how am I doing, simply see the score, how do I do, how do I, like, so, you know, that guilty is charged. Guilty. Yeah, guilty, <laughs> guilty for sure. As you became a more senior leader of your team, uh, I, you know, I assume that you could have had multiple paths that you could have taken at that point, but you decided to move towards the intelligence division. Uh, what yep. was your line of thinking there? And, you know, can you talk to us a little bit more about like why you made sure. that decision? Yeah. So, um, the, Thought process around which branch to select, there's a lot that goes into it. Because over the course of the four years at West Point, you learn about the different branches, where they're headquartered, what their primary missions are. And uh, military intelligence is not is not con considered a combat. You know, it's not armor, infantry, field artillery, meaning you're not sitting there on the battlefield in front, you know, projecting our force wherever it needs to be projected. You're, you're in a support mode. Right, you're aggregating information, aggregating data, and communicating that to the commander on the battlefield so that they can make intelligent decisions about how to deploy troops to solve the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're a part of the intelligence is part of the staff. It's like the G two. That's where the word yeah. G, you get G two on it. Right. That's the general level intelligence. Um, my thought process was I I believed that I could be more impactful as in that support role and be a combat multiplier, be much more effective at doing that data integration, understanding what's going on, bringing knowledge about the enemy, knowledge about the, the terrain and the weather, all of the different components that come to bear and help provide guiding information than 
being the infantry platoon leader that, you know, was in front of the infantry platoon of 25 to 40 people, usually younger. My soldiers, my soldiers in military intelligence would have advanced degrees, multiple languages. So the, the leadership challenge would be different than with yeah. a younger group of infantry soldiers, enlisted soldiers who I better be able to do a lot of push-ups. I better be able to do a lot of sit-ups. I better be able to run fast. Hoo-ah. Like more of what you see in the, in the movies. Yeah. Um, so that was my belief. That so, so, here's a qu- so here's a question for you, which is, you know, in, in the military, especially amongst the armed forces, it's such a dynamic thing, leadership, because you're truly asking for people to put like their own lives on the line here to follow you. When you saw other senior leaders that you respected in the armed forces as truly great leaders, what were the traits in those men or women that you thought to yourself, like, wow, that's what a real leader actually is about? So the entire process from West Point all the way through all the years that you're in, you know, the advice that I received was you're going to, you're going to, you can't choose your leader, right? You're assigned to a unit. You're in that unit. You're in a squad. You're in a platoon, whatever it might be. You're in a division. And the decisions about who the leadership are, it's not a vote, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, and it's, it's out of your control and you're going to have great examples and you're going to have bad examples. And the challenge is to take on those that you think are the most effective and you can lead with fear and you can lead with love and you can lead with thoughtfulness. There, there are so many nuances around the style of leadership, but the, the leadership traits or the leadership characteristics are actually what I wrote the, uh, the book about the, the, it's, I don't know if you can see this or not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Man, it's 10 leadership principles that I learned in the military and put to work in business for Donald Trump. But it's, it's those, it's those principles, um, perseverance, planning, passion, uh, integrity. When, when you see not those talked about, but those actually walked, the, the, the activities walked where a, commander will, when they're getting in trouble for something, absorbs that heat round, we called, or absorbs that punishment and doesn't like point at one of the people that work for them. You've seen it in business. Everybody's mm-hmm. seen it, but they protect, protect and take care and are loyal to their soldiers. You know, that's an example of one that I think a lot of people have seen. There's a lot of, a lot of it in the movies, but I think people have seen it in regular civilian workforce. You know, does your leader blame you for everything in front of the founder or the CEO? Or do they take responsibility for it and talk to you about it separately? Um, when things go well, do they distribute that praise to the people who did the work or do they absorb it themselves and mm. take it and say, hey, that was all my fault? Like that, mm. that type of loyalty is super important. But um, what, about, what about the flip side of that? What, what, what would the reverse be? Regardless of the circumstances, uh, were there traits that you viewed in certain leaders that you learned to avoid over time or, or traits in, in leaders that you would, you know, if you were giving your nephew or, a, or one of your, you know, your friends advice, say, ah, I don't, I think you should stay away from that. What are the red flags for you in leadership? Yeah. Um, so at Ranger School, they're called Spotlight Rangers. It means they only perform when the boss is looking at them. Mm. Um, and there, it, it is, you know, trying to that. take trying to take the blame, trying to, you know, tr- trying to take the praise and say, Hey, that's the work that I did without ever passing it. That was what I was talking about before a little bit, but 
you know, that spotlight ranger mentality. You really got to watch out for that with teammates. You got to work out, watch out with when you're, when you're in the leadership position, you got to watch out mm-hmm. for that. The people that are working for you are reporting to you. Um, and then I'd say the people that had a problem operating as part of a team, right, where there was no collaboration. And even in the military, as strange as it may sound, but there has to be significant collaboration up, down and across the organization for any effective solution to work. Um, so if you see somebody who's rigid and in, in basically it's their way or the highway, if that comes out very often, that's a, that's a big sign of trouble. Mm. That's fantastic advice. Uh, Kelly, how did your leadership style change when you had a very small team versus when your team started to get bigger? And, and like you could maybe even position it towards pre-seed going to seed, seed going to series A. Like, you know, how does your leadership style have to change as you go from a very small group of cadets, let's say, to much bigger where you're leading the whole, the whole pack? Any, any thoughts around that? Sure. I think that uh, as your organization starts to evolve, your emphasis and mentality as, a, as the founder or the entrepreneur moves away from doing um, and becomes much more around, you, you'll be unable to scale if you don't move from doing everything to ensuring that it's doable by someone else. And that means you have to set up the processes uh, you have to conduct cross training so things aren't going to fall through the hoops. Then you have to do the probably one of the hardest thing, and that's trust. So if you've trained them, if you've set up the processes so that it's checklists and it's understood how the process works, the final step is letting go of your baby to some degree mm. and truly surrounding yourself with people who are better at those pillars than you are. Because I don't care what founder you are, literally, you're going to be able to find somebody who can do marketing or finance or product or engineering or security, you know, or customer or, service or, or, or operations or, or, right. or, and for many, many founders, HR, <laughs> like understanding and having been there and done that before with the right tools in order to scale is critically important. And the, the hardest thing to do is trust to trust is a lot easier if you've done the training the right way so that you're what we call in the military commander's intent but what you what you want the solution to look like and how you want the company to be if that's if that's communicated properly and then the training takes place then the final step is letting go with the trust now commander's intent meaning that uh, in order to build trust with your team, you have to have clear intentions of where you're going. And like the whole, the whole picture should be very clear. And that's what enables you to have a successful mission. Is, is that the, the yeah. analogy okay. between the two? Yeah. So the commander's tense, what's, what's part of what's normally called an operations order. And that's if you're going to do a mission or you're, you're starting a company or you're out, you know, out for a new product release, whatever it is. So the commander's intent is a hopefully one sentence, but very short paragraph, but very, very short that if I'm alone on the battlefield, if the lowest lowest rank soldier is alone on the battlefield, if they only know the commander's intent, it can help them make the right decision. Right. So, you know, the commander's intent is to uh, take the bridge with the fewest casualties possible. Let's say it's a wartime effort. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I get separated from the unit. What, 
if, if I remember nothing else, and I know I'm supposed to, we have to take the bridge with the fewest men possible by a certain date, right? It's got to be pretty precise. It's got to be a thing that you want to accomplish, right? It's the, this is the intent. Um, that should be known by everybody in your organization, right? What does Slack want to be? What is, and from when they're onboarded, hired and onboarded to 30 day, 60 day, 90 day reviews to been here for 10 years, working away next to the founder, everyone should understand what the current commander's intent is or vision for the company. I love that. I, that I've never heard of it, you know, framed as, uh, you know, the commander's intent, but, uh, I, I like that. I might, I might be jotting out a, a little Google doc after this. Um, now yeah. CEO's vision, CEO's founder's vision, CEO's vision, whatever, whatever. You yeah. Want. Yeah. I mean, I think like a big change for our team, uh, over the last six to 12 months has been around OKRs in general and just putting more intention around having objectives and key results. And I think that in, in many ways, the commander's, uh, uh, one more time. It's the commander's intention yeah, is, commander's is sort intent. of, yeah, yeah. Commander's intent is sort of like an objective of the, of the OKR, but it sounds like it's almost like the North star objective. It's yeah. like the, the, it's the single umbrella. objective. It's yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. It's the umbrella. And if your OKRs aren't aligned, aren't doing, if, if there's something inside there that doesn't actually can't, you can't connect it to the commander's intent. You're like, okay, why are we doing this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that. I love that. How did you know, Kelly, that it was time to leave the armed forces? I know that you were saying that you had a five-year window. Were, did you yeah. just wait until the five years was up or, or was there something kind of brewing inside that made you want to transition out? So where I was, I was three and a half years in and force planning for the army was in the doing base drawdowns, making different year groups smaller. Everything's planned by year group. You need to have this many second lieutenants, this many captains, this many at this, this year group. And they plan out five years, 10 years, trying to plan for everything. And because there was some reduction in force and some base closures, just some, some shrinking, they put out to all classes of, I think, 88 and 89. I was grad graduated class of 89. And they said, for anyone who would like to leave the military early with no formal commitment, you know, please submit this military form dot, you know, DD dot, da, 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 whatever. And I had already contemplated and thought and taken LSAT and GMAT for the time when it, it came that I, if that's an option, I wanted to have that, that ability. And I looked at everything and I said, the next, the next major challenge for me in the military is probably 24 months away meaning I could take command of a military intelligence unit because I'd done other roles to get to that point. I'm like, do I want to wait two years and still have to compete for that slot? That's pretty mm -hmm. rare. Or because this opportunity exists, I can go out into the civilian sector and make a mark there. And I decided at that point in time that it was time to go. What advice do you have for other military founders? You know, very open-ended question, right? But yeah, yeah. but I guess let me let me give it a little more framing, which is like, you know, the internet has now provided a much more dynamic world for entrepreneurial, you know, armed uh, uh, forces. And so when you now meet, you know, someone coming out, I know you love working with uh, uh, leaders that come from the military because you know they come with, you know, the right sort of traits that you're looking for. Uh, but what advice generally do you have now for just entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurs in the military? 
Yeah, my advice has been for the, the entrepreneurs that actually have military backgrounds, um, I, I try to bolster their confidence. Um, mm. If they're just coming out of the military, there is certainly a set of business nomenclature that they may or may not be familiar with. Certainly not venture financings, um, maybe not specific, uh, specific components to product building in, in tech and software, but the vast experience they have of having millions of dollars spent on them, training them in leadership per se, they are, they are going to be very, very comfortable in the entrepreneur's seat. Limited resources, unclear circumstances, lots of competitors, uh, challenging employees, and you have to lead that group and all of those elements through it. You have to tell a story, paint a picture that's compelling, and in the, in the beginning stages, you're certainly lead, leading by doing, showing up first, mm. not asking your, your troops, your employees to do anything that you're not willing to do, just fundamental leadership components that they literally have had millions of dollars spent training them in. It's, it's an unfair comparison. Wow. They're so well suited for entrepreneurial environments. Now, uh, Kelly, not many people know this about you, but you decided to leave the armed forces and you actually got your MBA and your JD at the exact same time, which is uh, uh, pretty crazy uh, in and of itself. Uh, why was that so important for you to get both degrees? Why not just one or the other? So I, I did my research on the front end and I, I initially thought maybe I would want to be a corporate attorney doing M&A transactions and large corporate deals. Um, so I started and all of the lawyers that I interviewed and talked to said that they wish they had, or if they look for, uh, associates who have the business background and, and really understand financial statements because it would be super, super helpful, right? Not just to understand the legal side, but to understand the finance side. And I thought that was interesting. And I got a job at a law firm. Uh, I talked about it a little bit earlier, but I got a job at a law firm, uh, and worked 20 hours a week. 20 to 30 hours a week during that JD MBA period after the first year, um, during that first summer. And after two summers of doing that, while I made good money, which helped defray the cost of going to school, um, I realized that I did not want to be an attorney, that I instead really liked the people that I met from the MBA program <laughs> and loved that entrepreneurial side. And that's kind of where the bug bit me. Um, and then I basically stopped the law path. I still completed law school. I'd done over half of it when I made this decision. I said, I'm going to finish it. I did not take a bar exam. Um, I kind of looked at it as I didn't want to have that safety net of just being able to go be an attorney if the entrepreneurial track didn't work out. So I, I kind of took that took, just because I saw at a large firm what personal lives were like and how unhappy everybody was for the most part. And I just thought, let's go this entrepreneurial route. <laughs> It's about the same amount of hours with about a bazillion times more payout. <laughs> so. Now, now, from my understanding, what what year what year were you getting your JD and your MBA? Uh, ninety two to ninety six. Because, like, from my understanding, being an entrepreneur in the early nineties was not nearly as uh, you know it was near not nearly as like sexy as it is in today's world, like with Facebook and the social network. 
did you uh, kind of get pushed into entrepreneurship, like kind of from your knowledge of your dad and that, or did you have a mentor in college? Like what, what was sort of the um, catapult or the catalyst that started to get you to uh, want to go down your own entrepreneurial uh, route when it's not really like what a lot of people are doing. <laughs> Sorry. God bless you. Thanks. No um, so I, I'd say watching my dad operate as an entrepreneur, um, uh, building everything from shopping centers to residential communities. Uh, it, it was amazing to see him have a vision for what a plot of land could end up being. Think about that that plot of land is in a throat of growth out of a, a city. Um, be able to convince someone of that story that's a large anchor tenant, whether it's Kmart's or Kroger's or whatever, whatever it might be, it was Southeast. That's why Kroger's a shopping uh, yeah. grocery store. Ralph's. Um, Ralph's. So, so uh, for those of you in Southern California. And, and then think about all of the different elements or parts that have to come together to that from permits to convincing the local community that this is something that would be good for him. And he had to go stand in front of city council and argue why this needs to occur. And then putting the contract work together, putting all the leases together, working with the debt facility, because you have to finance that with a lot of debt, getting an equity partner, all of those things need to happen and they need to evolve. And they all, all the balls kind of need to drop through the hoop in the right order at the right time for it to be successful. And if you think about what it's like to build a company, you need the right talent, yeah. you need the right vision, you need the right financing, and you need to start executing against that to make it all come together and make it all happen at the right time to get the product out. And I'm, you know, I, I think that's where I saw it and was comfortable with it. Um, I also really don't like the concept or the idea of working for somebody. Uh, so, so Kelly, the next question I have is around image tell, which you know, is a really exciting story because you actually started by getting friends and family money to put this together. I, I know like your brother was involved and, uh, you know, you raised a little money. Can, can you tell us the Ralph story? That's like one of my favorite, uh, you know, my favorite stories about so, research you guys. So, wow, you did your research. Um, <laughs> so the, I don't know what the average is. The average when I was in business school is like, it's five times before an entrepreneur has a successful outcome. Um, so image tell was my first learning experience, um, which I'm sure uh, a lot of you know serial entrepreneurs are familiar with. But uh, we had done an integration of a system that allowed for video conferencing. So this is a long time ago, and it was a uh, basically 16 by nine aspect ratio, which everybody's used to looking at now on their flat panels on the wall, but was novel back then. And it was boardroom size, so it wasn't desktop, um, and it was you know real motion, a special lens, a special integrated system over what probably most people don't know is ISDN lines, you know, allowed for high, high bandwidth. And it was only for like the, you know, we had, we had clients like the FBI and Lehman brothers and some big ones. Um, but we were having to factor orders literally and factoring an order is something, you know, some people might be familiar with, but you get an order from somebody like the FBI, you take that to the bank, they scratch their head and they look at it and say, okay, we'll give you 75 cents on the dollar on that. We'll loan it to you. So you can buy the parts to build the system. Um, uh. and we'll charge you interest. We think the FBI is probably going to be good for the payment or whoever. whoever <laughs> yeah, I hope so. So we had cobbled this thing together and worked on it for years. And my brother was involved and my dad was involved. I got a bunch of friends to invest money 
and I worked on this during the JD MBA program after I stopped working with the, with the, with the law firm. And I got to the point where I hadn't taken a paycheck. Um, you know, still paying rent. I was in school. It, it was a lot less expensive for in-school tuition, but it was still money when you don't have money coming in. And I had run the expenses up for, run, you know, for getting the company run. I was at like $80,000 in credit card debt. Oh my gosh. <laughs> my fees for school, right? So I'm like at the Ralph's on uh, Olympic and Barrington over there. And I had my, you know, ha half the cart filled up with ramen and tuna fish, which is all I would eat at the time because that's what I could afford to get at volume. And they're like, sorry, sir, that didn't go through. And I'm like, okay, I got to do something else. Um, but I, I literally was tapped. And so I had to, I, I'd stayed in it way too long because it was friends and family money past the point that was good for me. And I, I urge all you entrepreneurs out there to have a, an advisory board or a board of directors for you personally, not just for your company, who have your best interest at heart that can tell you when you've gone long, long enough. Yes, mm -hmm. you have to be perseverant. Yes, you should never give up. Um, but at some point in time, somebody with object objectivity has to tell you, stop, go do a different company, make a bunch of money in that company and get those people that you lost their money back opportunity in the next company. Um, and that was my that was my point of time for that, but nobody told that to me. I get, I got told by <laughs> by the laws of economics. Um, I had no more money to eat, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs forced me into a, a short stint at Deloitte Consulting. Um, I called them and said, "You remember that offer you made me? If you double the signing bonus, I'm happy to show up." And they did. So I worked I worked at Deloitte for about 16 months until and still kept eating tuna and ramen until I paid <laughs> everything off. And uh, when I got back in the black financially, I went to my next startup. Well, uh, Kelly, this is an amazing way to end part one of what's going to be our first ever uh, two-part uh, VC series outside of my own episode, which I tried to take the cake. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Thank you for everyone listening. Stay tuned for part two, where we'll go into you know the second part of Kelly's life and learn more about moonshots and uh, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today on Demo Day. We'll see you for part two. See you for part two. All right. Peace, man. Peace.